This is the reading of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already instructed you and, uh, and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Well, good morning. And welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, go ahead and turn with me to uh, the passage that we just heard this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible, there should be some Bibles that look like this in the pew backs in front of you. Uh, feel free to turn there. Uh, on, in my Bible, 1 Thessalonians is uh, page 956. So you can find that on page 956, or you can uh, scroll through in your own scriptures. Always good to bring your Bible to church, and uh, increasingly we'll be reading from it. Uh, so today we're going to end about a 9 or 10 week series that we've been in the midst of, uh, covering what has historically been called the seven deadly sins. And we come to the last of that. I hope that you have enjoyed uh, partaking in it as much as I have enjoyed giving it. Uh, personally, it's been very challenging, and I hope it is, has been for you. So today we come to the last in our series, and we look at the sin and the temptation of lust. So I trust that you're there in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the chance to, to open the bread of life, to look into your word that is altogether inspired. It's altogether good and holy and righteous. It's uh, there for our sanctification, for our training. It teaches us how to uh, become obedient. It shows us our sin, and it tells us about the grace of Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly, though we never could, who died on the cross, bearing uh, the wrath of his Holy Father in our place for our sin, and that he rose again to give us new and eternal life, both new life here and eternal life in heaven. Father, thank you for this glorious good news, and I pray that as we look into this subject that is difficult, it's hard, and we all, Father, have fallen in some way, shape, or form. May we be encouraged to know that the blood of Christ covers all for those of us who place our faith in him, and it not only covers our sins, but it changes us from the inside out as your Holy Spirit lives in us, causing us to desire and then to be enabled to live a holy and righteous life. And so help us in our fight with lust, we pray in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen. So this week I ran across an article uh, just in God's divine providence was flipping through the mail and uh, I get mail from uh, the ministry of Chuck Swindoll. Uh, he used to be the president of Dallas Seminary. Uh, he now is a, is a pastor up there in Dallas and so I, I appreciate his ministry very much and was just flipping through the mail and came across an article that he wrote. And as I was reading it, I thought, oh, this is good sermon material. And so I'd like to read it uh, to you. Uh, this is a story that he tells firsthand about an encounter that he had with the temptation of lust. He writes this. He says, I'll never forget one day when God drove this truth home. He said, I had been out of the country for more than a week. 
After a long day, I was in the lobby of my hotel room, hungry, lonely, and and feeling kind of sorry for myself as I really was missing Cynthia and the kids. He said, I made my way to the elevator, the doors opened, and two attractive women followed me in. I punched the button for the sixth floor, but the ladies didn't press theirs. What floor? I asked. One of the women looked at me, smiled rather seductively, and said, how about the sixth floor? The elevator door closed. Now, I'll be honest, he writes, we were alone in the elevator. Alone in the elevator, in another country. And these women were were frankly available. I was lonely, and I was momentarily flattered. After all, nobody ever mistakes me for Brad Pitt. Me neither. In those moments when the first, between the first and the sixth floors, I had an all-important decision to make. You know what flashed through my mind? My wife and family? Well, no, not at first. My reputation? No, not right away. The possibility of, of being set up? Not exactly. God brought something else into my mind. He brought these words. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. He writes, after remembering that verse, at that moment, my thoughts turned to what I would reap. The destruction of my marriage, the devastation of my children, my future grandchildren not asking me to officiate their wedding for lack of respect and, of course, a total loss of my ministry. He writes, it was then easy to look at the women and say rather calmly, My evening is already full. I'm really not all that interested. He says, they looked at me like I'd just fallen off the turnip truck. The doors opened on my floor, and I got out alone, he writes. Friends, you may encounter lust, not altogether unlike our friend, Pastor Chuck Swindoll. Your encounter with lust may not come late one night in a hotel elevator, but make no mistake, Lust is looking for you. It may appear in your email inbox as an unexpected email. It may parade itself daily in the cubicle across from you at work. It may reveal itself in the pages of of the romance novel that you're reading or maybe in the advertisement of the attractive figure that you long to be like. Yes, friends, lust is looking for all of us. And the question is, are you looking out for lust? So today, here's what I'd like for us to do, to learn to look out better for lust in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First of all, I want us to see in verses 1 through 3, the constraints of lust. That is, what should constrain us from just giving in to our lusts? Then I want us to see lust clarified. What is lust biblically? I want to see it characterized. That is, what are some of the characteristics of lust in our life? Then I want to consider in verses 6 through 8, its consequences, as Chuck Swindoll talked about. And then finally, we're going to close by learning how to combat it, how to combat lust. So let's begin. If you have your Bibles open, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and look at verses 1 through 3 where we see two things that should, as Christians, constrain our lust. That is, what should constrain us as followers of Christ from listening and obeying our lust? What should, what should help us fight those thoughts? What should help us from clicking on that website? What should help us from fixing our eyes on the the woman or the man who walks by us rather than turning our eyes away? What should help us 
from envisioning ourselves on in the romance novel or maybe in the film that we're watching? Well, I would suggest a couple things. Let's take a look at the text to see the first thing in verse 1. The first thing that should constrain lust in my life and in yours is that as a born-again Christian, we should want to please God. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. He says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So here's the first thing that should constrain our lust. If you follow Jesus Christ, if you are a born-again Christian, God is your heavenly Father and you are His Son. You are His daughter. The first thing that should constrain our lust is a simple desire to please our Heavenly Father. A simple desire to obey the one who has saved us with his mighty grace. We should want to please God. And in wanting to please God, we'll learn a little bit later, we should learn to fight lust. So when I became a Christian, I was 15 years old, maybe 16 years old. I think it was my junior year in high school. And I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I had heard the gospel, and I believed it, and I, I was born again. I was a different person, although... Some of my old flaws were still there, as they are with you. And at that time, I was in a dating relationship. Uh, And there was something that was kind of instantaneous in my mind. I had a new heavenly father, and I had a new desire in my heart. I, I didn't know much about the Christian life. I didn't know much about the Bible, but this I knew. I knew that I wanted to please the one who had saved me. I just wanted to make him happy. And it came, I came to realize very quickly that the dating relationship that I was in was not pleasing to him. It was not pleasing to him. And so I made a, what was a tough decision at that time, not really. I, I cut it off. I, I, I dumped her. Sayonara, sister, right? I said, adios. This is not good for me or you. And of course, it was devastating to her. Um, I don't know if it was or not, but I let her go simply because I wanted to please my Heavenly Father. How about you? What, what constrains your lust? First of all, it should be a pure and simple love for God. Secondly, look at verses 2 and 3. Not only should we want to please God, but it's simply not God's will for our life. We see in verses 2 and 3 that the second thing that should constrain us indulging our lust is simply that this is not what God wants. Look at verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Well, what is that instruction? He tells us in verse 3, it is God's will. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And then he explains that, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So as Christians, sometimes, oftentimes, we should wrestle with this. What is God's will? What does God want for me, right? Does God want me to marry this person or that person? Does he want me to go to this school or that school? Does he want me to take this job or that job? Does he want me to, tra- to, to send my kids to this school or that school? All of those things, we should seek God's will. But oftentimes, I would say most of the time, those things are hidden. They're not revealed in Scripture. Christian, hear me. God has a will for your sexuality. He has a desire, a plan for you. It's not hidden it's, it's, it's not something that's not clear. Paul makes it very clear. Notice what he says. It is God's will positively that you should be sanctified. What does that mean? It simply means that God desires that you be set apart for him, that you be set apart from sin, and that you be set apart for him. Positively, we are 
set apart to God. But then there are negative implications. Notice what he says, that you should be sanctified. He explains that negatively, that you should avoid sexual immorality. What, what does that mean? Well, to make a long story short, when you look at what this word translated sexual immorality means, it simply is used both in the New Testament and in Greek writing outside of the New Testament to describe a whole host of sexual sins, all sorts of things that are anything outside of sexual relationships, outside of the bonds of marriage. It is a junk drawer term. It can describe anything and everything that is sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. And so, listen, friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ, you don't have to wonder about what God wants for your sex life if you're not married. He doesn't want you to have one. He wants you to remain pure, sanctified unto him, and use sexual relationships in the way that he intended, which is in marriage. So let's begin with this. What should constrain our lust? First of all, it's a simple desire to please God. Secondly, it's that God desires that for us. It is his will for those of us who name the name of Christ to be set apart. So we've seen lusts constraint. Let's look on in our text at verses 4 through 6. Specifically, I want you to look at verse 5. It should be up on the screen or in your Bible. As we look into verse 5, I want to move from what should constrain our lust to what uh, lust actually is. I want it to be clarified. Let's see, see some clarification on what we mean when we use this word, lust. Take a look at verse 5 with me. Paul says that we should live, quote, not in passionate lust. There's our word. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. So what exactly, friends, is lust? What is it? Well, it's, it's not all that hard to understand. In the Bible, lust simply describes any strong craving or strong desire. That's it. It's a strong desire. It's a strong craving. And what that means is that lust, biblically speaking, is morally neutral. It, it's not a matter of your desire. It's what you desire, right? Is what you're desiring good and holy and righteous and pleasing to God? Or is what you're desiring unrighteous and altogether sinful? In other words, it can be good or bad. So, case in point, in Luke 22, Jesus speaks to his disciples about wanting to eat his final Passover meal with them. And the word used there is lust. He greatly desired to be with his disciples. That's not wrong, right? We see Paul in Philippians 1.23, a, a wonderful verse. Paul speaks of his desire to be with Jesus in terms of lust. He strongly desires to be with Jesus. That's a good thing, right? So it's not that we desire, it's what we desire. In fact, oftentimes in the New Testament, we see lust associated with uh, desiring things that are inherently evil. So, so the Bible describes worldly lusts. The Bible speaks of evil lusts. The Bible speaks of youthful lusts. The Bible speaks of deceitful lusts. That is when we desire things that are inherently evil. Well, what about when it comes to sexuality? Oftentimes when we think of lust, we immediately, immediately go to sexual lust and sexual sin, as we see in our passage today. Well, what is lust in that sense? It's simply this. It's simply having a strong desire for that which is illicit, for that which is prohibited sexual actions. And it's often tied to sexual sin. That makes sense. If we desire something strongly, that is prohibited by God, it's outside of his, his loving boundaries for us, and yet we strongly desire it, then it makes sense that that often leads 
to breaking that boundary, right? To stepping over God's prohibition. It's often tied to sexual sin, as it is in this particular passage. So, so what is lust? Well, in, in the sense that we're talking about it this morning, it's simply desiring things that are off the table for us as Christians. So I want to share with you a definition. Uh, Brian Hedges, again, in his book, Hit List, I think gives us a, a very helpful definition. And it's kind of a, a fourfold distinction definition. He writes this. He says, lust is a disordered and idolatrous sexual desire for pleasure. Excuse me. It's a disordered and idolatrous sexual desire that is both enslaving and destructive. So, so four parts to his definition. First of all, lust is a disordered. It's a disordered desire. He writes this. He says, on one level, lust is an excessive desire for sexual pleasure. Wanting sexual fulfillment too much or pursuing it in ways or relationships that are forbidden by God. But, he says, from another angle, lust is a defective desire. That is, for it wants not too much, but it actually wants too little. He says, lust desires sexual pleasure minus the kind of relationship that sex was designed for in the first place, which, of course, is marriage. So lust is a disordered desire, but it's more than that. He says it's an idolatrous desire. He says lust is an attempt to use sexual satisfaction to fill the void in one's soul. Lust, he says, is the idolatry of sex. It's disordered. It's an idolatrous desire. But third, it's an enslaving desire. I think this is helpful. Lust, he writes, is a dominating, enslaving desire. He says once reason... Uh, one reason lust holds people captive is because it is so easily becomes habitual, right? I want to share a story with you. The great pastor Charles Spurgeon uh, from about a century ago, but his sermons still echo and are significant. He, he once told a story, a simple illustration, about the self-enslaving nature of lust. He, he once said this as one of, his, one of his sermons, and I'll quote his sermon. He said, There was once a tyrant who summoned one of his subjects into his presence and ordered him to make a chain. The man was a blacksmith. That was his occupation. So he had to go to work and forge the chain. When it was done, he brought it into the presence of the tyrant, and he offered the chain to him. But then uh, he said, no, it's not good enough. Take it away and make it twice as long. And so he was frustrated, but he had to do it. And so he went back, made it twice as long, and then yet again he was ordered to double it. So he dutifully did it, came back, obeyed the order, gave it to the tyrant. And the tyrant looked at it and then commanded his other servants to bind the man who had made the chain hand and foot with the chain that he himself had made. Friends, similarly, the taskmaster of lust ultimately is a self-enslaving sin. But it's not only that, it's a destructive desire. Number four, it's, it's destructive because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's, it's a sin against our own body. And, of course, it leads us to a myriad of other sexual sins. So what is lust? What is lust, right? It's simply desiring that which God has said is out of bounds. So I want us to look now at verses 4 through 6. Because we've, we've seen what should constrain our lust. We've seen it clarified. But I want to see a couple characteristics of lust. John Piper, in his book, Killjoys, has made this observation from this text. And he's absolutely right on. There are two characteristics of lust in my life and in your life. And the first one is found in verse 4. First of all, lust, it disregards God. When we choose to indulge 
in our lust. We ultimately disregard God. Paul says that we are to control our own bodies in a way that is, number one, holy, and number two, honorable. Well, isn't it interesting that he says that I, we should live in such a way that our bodies should be both holy and honorable? What does that imply? That we can honor God with our bodies or we can dishonor God with our bodies, right? And that's exactly what lust does when we obey its commands. We disregard God. Piper comments. He says, lust is sexual desire that is not regulated or governed or guided by a supreme regard for God. God created sexuality. He alone has the wisdom and the right to tell us how to use it for his glory and for our good. Lust is what sexual desire becomes when we give it reign in our life. It ultimately disregards God. So friends, this is what it means. When we are lax on lust, when we cross God's benevolent boundaries, say with our boyfriend or our girlfriend, when we use our smartphones to view dumb websites, when we secretly wish that we had a husband like so-and-so and then envision ourselves in that relationship, ultimately, we are disregarding God. But not only does lust disregard God, it dishonors other people. It dishonors us, but it actually dishonors the person if another person is involved in our lust. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, in that in this matter that is referring to sexual immorality. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So when we pursue lust, we're not just dishonoring, uh, disregarding God. We're actually dishonoring the person that we're sinning with. Piper says this. He says, to say to another person, with or without using words, I want you to satisfy my sexual desire but I don't want you as a covenant partner in marriage, basically means I want to use your body for my pleasure, but I don't want you as a whole person. And he's exactly right. And so when we lose lust in our life, the person we dishonor is not just ourselves, but the person, let's say, who we're viewing on that site, the person who we're lusting after in that film, or the partner that we are choosing to rebel against God with. So we've seen a couple characteristics of lust. I want to move now and focus on the consequences. Look at verses 6 through 8, kind of the tail end of this section, as we're going to notice three consequences of lust. And they're probably not what you're thinking. But before we do that, I want to introduce the idea of, of the consequence of lust and what it can have in our life by a short clip. And so the guys in the back are going to cue that up. Uh, I want to watch a short, sh- short scene uh, from a movie maybe you've seen, maybe you're not. It's called Paul Blart, Mall Cop. The first one, I know there's a new one coming out, not that one, but the original, right? Paul Blart, Mall Cop. Let's, let's see this short clip and learn a little bit about the consequences of lust. So, there are consequences to taking a little too long of a look, right, at that guy or that gal. And, of course, that's a, a humorous, but there are other, of course, more, more serious consequences to lust in our life. And, 
And some of the ones that I'm going to mention should be fairly obvious, right? So so lust can lead to, to fornication. It can lead to adultery. It can lead to all sorts of STDs or unplanned pregnancies or maybe living our, our life in a fantasy world, we can very easily become addicted to things like pornography. Of course, in its most extreme kind of forms, it can lead to, to rape or other sexual abuse. However, in light of all of these consequences that lust can, can, can lead to in our life, Paul doesn't go there. Notice what Paul says in verses 6 through 8 as he gives us three consequences to lust in our life. The first one is found in verse 6. Lust leads to divine punishment. He says, The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and we warned you before. One author by the name of Drew Anderson tells a short story about his experience with the consequences of lust in his own life. He he writes this. He says, My wife and I were once shopping at the mall, and we were by the kiosk, and uh, a shapely young woman who had a short, form-fitting dress strolled by. He writes, my eyes followed her. Without looking up from the item that she was examining, my wife asked me this penetrating question. Was it worth the trouble that you're in now? It's an important question, right? Friends, how much more should we fear being in trouble with a holy God than we might fear the consequences of lust with our spouse? Lust leads to divine punishment. But not only that, notice verse 7. Lust actually puts us at odds with God's calling for our life. Notice verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but he called us to live a holy life. He's restating what we've seen before. So it leads to divine punishment. It puts us at, at odds with our calling as Christians. And then number three, leniency on lust is ultimately a rejection of God himself. I can't emphasize verse 8 enough. Therefore, Paul says, as he kind of wraps up this section, therefore, anyone, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So friends, brothers and sisters, please hear me. To reject this teaching, or to reject any of the Bible's teaching on sexual morality or immorality is tantamount to staring God in the face and to saying, you are wrong. I am right. I know better than you. Friends, let's not do that to our Heavenly Father. When we undercut biblical authority on any issue, but in particular on the matters of sexuality, in the process, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we undermine the integrity of the entire good news in the God who offers it. For if the Bible is wrong about, about sexual sin and sexual morality, what else might be wrong? What else might be wrong? I want to read a quote by the, uh, a guy whose name is Daniel Heimbach. And, and in his book, True Sexual Morality, he makes this point rather clear. He says this. He says, The stakes in the current conflict over sex are more critical and more central and more essential than any controversy in the, that the church has ever known. Conflict over sex these days is not just challenging tradition, orthodoxy, marriage, or gender roles. And it, does, 
it does not just affect critically important doctrines like the sanctity of human life, the authority and the trustworthiness of Scripture, the Trinity in the incarnation of Christ. He writes this, Rather, war over sex among Christians is now raging over absolutely essential matters of faith, without which one without which no one can truly be a Christian in the first place. Matters such as sin and salvation, the gospel, and the identity of God himself. And so friends, let's not look God in the eye and say, I know better than you do. So I want to end by this. I want to give us a list of about six things to help us combat lust in our life. So if you are where I am, we all are in the same boat. We struggle with this in one shape or form or another. What can we do? How should we approach it? Let me suggest six things. Number one, we need to simply call it what it is. We need to call lust and the sexual sin that comes from it, we need to call it what what it is. We need to stop making excuses. We need to stop uh, revising the scriptures. And we need to let God speak. We need to first and foremost agree that what God says is sin is actually sin and it's displeasing to God and it's harmful to us and it's harmful to others. We need to call a spade a spade. And so friends, let me plead with you. Do you need to repent for not calling some acts sin as God does? Do you need to to get on your knees and, and confess that God knows sexuality better than you? And He wants the best for you. And He wants the best for others. We need to Start by simply calling it what it is. Secondly, we need to commit to the fight. That is, we need to commit as Christians to fight lust. Job, I think, gives us a really helpful example. In Job 31.1, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. So friends, have you decided to fight the fight with lust in all of its forms and in all of its fashions before temptation comes to you? Have you decided to get in the war? Or are you just giving in? Dwight Eisenhower, we all know who that is, said this one time. He said, war is a terrible thing. But if you're going to get into it, you have got to get into it all the way. Friends, we need to get into the fight against lust all the way, right? We need to commit to the fight. Number three, simply put, we need to flee. We need to run from it over and over and over again. The Bible talks about fleeing from sexual sin, right? Again and again, 1 Corinthians 6.18, for example, says flee from sexual immorality. It doesn't get any clearer than that, right? Don't toy with it. Don't light a match and then see if it's going to burn you. Don't even light it in the first place is what he's saying. This may mean that you need to give up your smartphone because you can't handle the access that it provides for you. It may mean that you need to put the computer in the living room and not in your bedroom. It may mean that you don't need to be alone with that significant other if you're not married. It may mean speeding up your wedding so that you can satisfy your de- desires in the context of marriage. Let me give, let me give you a, a real clear uh, illustration of this. When Shelly Shelley and I met and we got married in under a year, generally speaking, I don't recommend that. Okay? I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend people following my footsteps. But I'll be really honest. Do you know what a, a part of that was? We had planned like a summer wedding, and uh, I think, you know, like it was the summer before. It was like a year out, and uh, things were just getting more difficult in the realm of sexual purity. And uh, I said, what do you think about a December wedding instead of a May or June or July? She said, I think we can do that. And so we got married in December, right? And not all of it, but this was a big part of it. I would rather have gotten married sooner 
than sin sexually against my wife to be in a holy God. So that may be something you need to consider. Number four, you need to take your mind captive. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And notice, hear this, and we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. Notice the image. Thoughts flood into our mind. Lustful thoughts flood into our mind. What does Paul say? We take that thought, we identify it, and we literally enslave it. We take it captive and we throw it out, right? We need to learn to take our minds captive. And so when a lustful thought comes, we first identify it. That's lust, right? Second, we say, I don't want to pursue that temptation. We must say no immediately. When I was in college, uh, I went to Texas A&M, and it's hot down there, if you don't know that. It's hot in Texas. And I would take summer courses because I wanted to actually get my degree in four years. And so I was uh, on campus during the summer, which usually is kind of quiet. But here's the deal about summer classes uh, in Texas. Girls, generally speaking, at a secular school, don't wear things that are particularly helpful. Um, in fact, they wore things that were unhelpful oftentimes. So I'd be strolling around campus, and, and literally, in my mind, i looking down, you know, or look up to where my class is, and, and, and a young lady would stroll by. And literally, I would have to say in my mind, stop it. And I would have to say, no. And on occasion, rare occasion, I would say it out loud. I would be walking through campus, no. And then people thought I had Tourette's or something, but... You know, it just came out because I got so used to speaking to myself, taking my mind captive. Did I do it well all the time? Of course not. Did I fall in sin? Absolutely. But we have to learn to take our minds captive. Number five, we need to stay active. We need to stay active. The weed of lust often grows in the garden of complacency. It grows in the, in the garden of boredom. It, 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 it can even grow in the garden of, of leisure. And so turn off the TV every now and then. There's nothing good on. Just baseball season. Who wants to watch that? Football's around the corner, then you can turn it back on, okay? Just turn the TV off. Put your iPhone down. Put your iPad away. Go play with your kids. Or maybe read a good book. Or rake the yard. Or talk with your spouse about uh, their day. Find a ministry in the church. Find a, a Bible study, right? Be involved, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 58. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Stay active. Stay active. And number six get help. James 5.16 tells us, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that we may be healed. As lust grows in the garden of inactivity, it also sprouts in the field of isolation. It sprouts in the field of loneliness, of a lack of accountability. And so find someone, a good Christian friend, someone you can talk to, you can confess your weaknesses to, who's going to ask you tough questions, who will pray for you. We all need help. And so friends, lust, it's coming. It's coming for you. It's coming for me. Just like it did Pastor Chuck Swindoll that night in the hotel room. And when it does, will, 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 will lust lick you? Or will you, loosen, will you loosen its grip on you as you look to Christ for victory? My prayer for myself and for all of us is that like Pastor Swindoll, we too will be able to live to tell a tale of lust losing in our life. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need your forgiveness. 
we desperately need the grace of Jesus that covers all of our sins. And we need the grace of Jesus that empowers us, that changes our hearts, that causes us to to want to love our Heavenly Father and never, ever to displease Him, to live in a way that is holy and honorable. Father, help us, we pray. Lord, lead us in repentance if we have not seen eye to eye with you about what is good and what is not. Lord, help us, humble us. Give us your strength as we learn to fight for our lives in this battle against lust. And may we increasingly have victory as we turn to Christ, as we call lust what it is, as we commit ourselves to fight it, as we flee again and again, as we tell it no time and time again, as we pursue being active and as we pursue help. God, help us to have victory over this sin for your glory and for our good. We ask it in the name of the strong name of Jesus, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Guys, thanks for this series. Next up, we'll get into the little book of Titus. Small book, big impact. See you then.